Luke writes in chapter 2, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now those two verses, we have built a lot of story and tradition and visual imagery into those two verses. This uh, Advent season, we have been going through a series uh, called Do You See? And we've been taking a close look at objects that are in our nativity scenes. And you look at all of the pictures, the Christmas cards especially, and, and we take these two verses and we come up with this quaint, serene, peaceful image. And most often we have the, our object for today, we're going to look at the stable. We, we have the stable set on a, a hill and maybe over here we see the outline silhouette of a camel or two and one of the magi, the kings, making their way and you know the star is placed up here carefully over the stable and, and the manger and it always amazes me. I mean, <clears throat> we can't get our cat and our dog to behave. Um, but in every picture, the animals, they're just looking in at the baby Jesus, nicely lined up. They look like they've come from the groomer. You know, they're clean. And the, the soft, fuzzy white sheep are there. And uh, you just get this image that it's probably quiet and serene and and then there's, you know, Mary and Joseph and their clothes are like perfectly pressed and uh, the baby Jesus is, is in the manger and the whole glow of light in the picture emanates from the manger uh, and he looks so happy and content and, and Mary, well... I don't know about her, but you know she just looks like in perfect condition, having come through labor, and it just amazes me all the time. And, but this is the picture, that the image that we have that, that's out there. And, and like I said, we're, today we're looking at the, the stable. Um, some churches do, have you, ever, have you ever been to a live nativity scene? You know, where it's, you know, the live animals and humans, and if they, if they have uh, a newborn baby enough, they can... Uh, have the, have Mary holding a baby Jesus, and, and you just kind of walk by or drive by, and, and there it is, the live nativity scene. And, and the tradition of that, actually the tradition of, of the nativity scene goes all the way back to 1223 when St. Francis, he's the first one to create a live nativity uh, in uh, Assisi, Italy, and he set up this live nativity, and, and his effort was really to um, 
to help lay people have more of a spiritual awareness at the time. So he thought, huh, if we do a live nativity, this might, you know, interaction would be good. And they can imagine what it may have been like to be there. And, and hundreds, huge crowds of people came out of the city with torches to this cave that he had it set up on out in, out in the hills. And, and that's kind of where the tradition started. And you can take it all the way back to the verses that we just read. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby Jesus to be born. And he was born, and he wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the tradition also gives us another picture. We imagine... Lots of scurrying around. Like Mary and Joseph have just come in from a long journey. Being the typical guy, Joseph didn't make reservations. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? I got family in town. I'm sure there's a place we can crash, probably a couch or something. We'll, we'll be good. There, there, there's places there. You know, we'll, just, we'll just find something when we arrive. It'll, it'll be fine. We don't know exactly when we're going to get there, so we'll just play it by ear. And so we have this uh, image, tradition gives us the image of, of Mary and Joseph scurrying around a darkened Bethlehem, going from inn to inn and banging on the door, and, you know, they bang on the door at the Motel 6, where the light's always on for you, right? Well, not in this case. Or, they, you know, then they go from the Motel 6, and, and, and they go down to the street, and they bang on the door at the Ramada Inn, and... It might be a really good place to be, but not that night. Then they go from the Ramada and go up, up the road to the Holiday Inn, and it might be the world's best innkeeper, but not for the King of Kings. You know, they just, we have this image. They go around. And at every, every place, sorry, there's no room. Didn't, didn't you see the red flashing neon sign that said, no vacancy. Yeah, but we just thought we'd check. Finally, one of them, one of the innkeepers in our tradition, tradition tells us that one of the innkeepers took pity on them and said, well, we do have that barn out back, and you're more than welcome to crash there if you really need a place tonight. So they did. Have you ever traveled without reservations? Yeah, I've done that. We were on our honeymoon. Guys, if you're getting close to being married, make all of the arrangements. I've since made up for it. I, right? Okay, good. She said yes. Our, our honeymoon was kind of a debacle. But on the way home, we hadn't made reservations for our final night. And so we lived in Wisconsin, and we took our honeymoon in Florida, and we drove with our cat. So not all places allow you to have a cat in the hotel. So that's a whole different story. Maybe another time. Uh, but the last night, we were thinking, Indianapolis, that's a big town, right? Over a million people. Well, we're driving home. We should be able to find a hotel in Indianapolis. 
And we tried. Okay, we'll just go further up the road. And you know, there's little exits all over the place. You know, some place has got to be open and have a room. Two hours we drove up the road before we finally found this little rinky-dink Lincoln place uh, in the middle of Indiana that had a room available for us. So we stayed there. Anyway, Mary and Joseph, in our tradition, the picture says that they found a place and she gave birth in this stable. Now, this is the story we all grew up with, right? Did I get it right? Okay. Parts of it are actually true. Uh, but I think that we need to look closely at the story so that we maybe have a more accurate picture of what might have happened that night. And we really only have a few words. This is a very simple story that Luke gives us to talk about the birth of, of the Savior. There's no pomp and circumstance. The bright lights and the flashiness, that's reserved for the shepherds who are out in the field. They, they get the angel choir and it lights up and, and they, they get that. It doesn't happen where Mary and Joseph are. And you have to go next door in your text over to, to Matthew to get any signs of kings or royalty at all. They're, they're not in Luke's gospel. We really only have, I've kind of boiled it down, there's two words that we create this whole tradition and imagery out of. And the two words are in and manger. There's no place for them in the inn. She had baby Jesus and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in the manger. Those two words, we create this big picture. There's no mention of animals in any of the stories. We assume that animals were there because there were shepherds, but it doesn't say the shepherds brought the animals with them. Th there's not really a frantic search from hotel to hotel. Luke says that while they were there, the time came. And the way that the grammar kind of lines up in, in the Greek language, while they were there, suggests that they had been there for at least a couple days. And then the time came for Mary to give birth. And so without a frantic search for innkeepers, there, there's not an innkeeper mentioned in the text that turns them away. We imagine that in. But we get the sentence, because there was no room for them in the inn, first word, inn. And we get this picture of motel, right? The motel in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem was such a small, tiny little town that it was probably way too small to have anything like a commercial uh, hotel or motel. Um, the, the word that Luke uses here that some translations like King James and the Revised Standard and the New American Standard and, and some of those versions, they're the ones that translate the word in. There was no room for them in the inn. The Greek word there is kataluma, which means, it just means lodging in a guest room. So we've translated it in in some cases. But there's another more common word used for a commercial establishment, and, and that word is pandokion. 
Now, uh, there, I'm not expecting you, there's not going to be a quiz on Cataluma or Pandokion at the end of the service. Um, the difference between those two words would kind of be like uh, if, if I were to talk to you about staying at a bed and breakfast or staying at a Hampton Inn. You know, something more comfortable and home-like versus, you know, corporate hotel model. So Cataluma and Pandokion. And Luke, he uses both of those words in his gospel. Uh, Luke is a doctor. He's a smart guy. He's really good with words. And so my belief is that Luke knew what he was doing, and he knew exactly what he was saying when, when he wrote these words. And Luke uses the word pandokion, corporate hotel, commercial establishment, when he writes about the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story? The guy left for dead on the side of the road, and a couple religious people walk by, go to the other side of the street, and, and don't help this person. But then along comes a Samaritan who sees the person in the ditch left for dead, and, and Jesus is telling the parable, and, and uh, the Samaritan comes over and dresses the guy's wound, and, and Luke uses the word pandokion. This good Samaritan took the victim to an inn. It's in Luke 10, 34, pandokion, place of public lodging. Now, Luke uses the other word, cataluma, in two places. He uses the word cataluma, which means lodging in a guest room in the birth story, the one that we read, and then it comes back around when he gets to the end of his gospel. And Jesus is in his last days of life on earth, and Jesus sends his, a couple of his disciples on ahead into Jerusalem, and he tells them, I want you to go find the guest room, Cataluma, where we're going to eat the Passover meal, which we sometimes call the Last Supper. So at the beginning of Jesus' story, Luke says there was no room in the Cataluma, the guest room, and, and as Jesus is, is leaving the pages of his gospel, Jesus has his disciples go prepare the Cataluma, the guest room. Well, that's a nice Greek lesson, right? What does this have to do with what we're talking about? See, the picture that we have in our mind is that an innkeeper just said, you know what, take whatever's left over, you can go out back behind this place, there's some animals stored there, but feel free to make yourself at home in the barn. And we get the picture of the stable. But in actuality, the word that Luke uses is lodging in a guest room. So it's most likely that Mary and Joseph found themselves in a family home. We know that this was Joseph's hometown. They were living in a culture where hospitality was expected. It wasn't an option. If people came to your house, you welcomed them in, especially if they were family, especially if the family member uh, is with child. So they were likely at a relative's place in the guest room that was available for lodging. Now, 
Luke says the guest room was full, right? Which makes sense if there's a census and, and family members from all over are coming back to the hometown. Well, the guest room probably would only sleep six to eight people. And so it wouldn't be hard for that room to be full already by the time they got there. And if you think about the architecture, if you look at the architecture of the day, there's a couple options of what this guest room might look like, um, or the accommodations where, where they, were, they were put. So the guest room was full, which typically was an upstairs room above the main living quarters, but that was full, so they, they went to either a cave. Sometimes uh, homes in that day were built over a cave so that at night they could bring the animals into the cave to protect them from the elements, the cold, predators, thieves. Some of the architecture of the day uh, actually had like a, a dugout stable sort of behind the main living space, but there were windows cut into the wall so you could look out and, and the animals would be standing in the stable and their head level would be looking right into your living room. Uh, and so it could be something like that. The other... Uh, interesting thing about the architecture is many times, especially among the peasants and the poor, the size of their uh, homes wasn't that large, and so they actually would bring the animals in to the house at night, into the main living quarters, where the, you know, the daily come and go, hang out with your family traffic happens. The guest room's full, so you know what, you can stay right here. And, and that's why the manger, the feeding trough, makes sense. You brought the animals in here, and, and that's what was available to use as, as a crib. Now, the other reason why all of this makes sense, that they didn't try and squeeze them into the guest room, is Mary is pregnant. She's with child. She's about to give birth. And when she does... Um, when women gave birth in those days, it, it rendered them ceremonially unclean for a period of time. And so the fluids involved with childbirth, uh, if they were in the, in the guest room, uh, it, would, it would render that room useless for at least a week. And so to be kind to other guests, they set up the birthing stool in a different part of the house. And so where we keep the animals probably makes sense. So I can think about this story, and, and even though I think we can dismiss a lot of the embellishments that we've added over the years, I think it's still safe to say that, that this night, this story is, well, it's still full of trouble, disappointment, confusion, it wasn't, you know, we just sang Silent Night. I love that song. And Christmas Eve Eve, it's, it's even more mystical and nostalgic when, when the lights go down and, and we light the candles and it's a beautiful moment. But I don't think it was a silent night. I don't think our Christmas cards get the picture exactly right. And whatever the exact place looked like, whether it was a cave or in the main quarters where the animals were kept or a little lean-to stable kind of attached to the house. 
I'm guessing that it wasn't what Mary and Joseph expected. I mean, they had been told that Mary's baby was the king of kings, was the Lord of lords, was going to be the savior. And I would imagine that in a young girl's mind, as she's imagining what it's going to be like to be a mother and all of the circumstances surrounding this, I I imagine that maybe the picture in her mind, she thought the circumstances might be more appropriate and fitting for royalty, for a king, that it's not going to play out like this. So while they were in Bethlehem, time came for Mary to deliver the baby. And they found themselves in this lowly, dirty, smelly part of a house or an animal shelter. So I guess when we look at the story and we look at this picture and we talk about the stable, what what does it all mean? Why did God choose these circumstances to introduce his son, our Savior? And and I want to look at two specific things. Uh, One, I, I think the humble surroundings of Jesus' birth are ironic in view of its cosmic significance. Jesus, God himself, entered into the world in as mundane a way as is possible. There's no pretenses. There's no flash of light. There's no conquering hero entering the story. Just an infant, a little baby with fingers and toes who cried, who needed his diaper changed. And all this gets right to the heart of the message of of the Advent architecture. That God chose to flip the script of what humans would expect. That God chose to give up privilege that he would have to take on humility. And in this setting... I think it shows the difference between how God chose to enter our, enter our world and how we might have chosen to do it ourselves. I mean, just a few years ago, when Prince William and Kate were expecting their royal child over in England, we, we got like minute-by-minute minute updates leading up to the birth and the arrival. That's how humans do it, with pageantry and paparazzi and parties and announcements and all of these sorts of things. And especially if we're, hey, this is the king of kings, the lord of lords, we got to make sure that people know about this. And God said, no, it doesn't have to go down like that. We're taught at such a young age now to to try and work our way up to places of privilege, work our way uh, into entitlement, to elevate ourselves over and above other people as as a way of getting ahead in our world and and of making a name for ourselves. See, we, we think that we gain significance and we gain our identity by what we do, who we know, how much money we have, all the stuff that we can accumulate. And God says, that's not how I'm gonna do it. I'm not impressed with the social structures that you have put in place. Daryl Bach, he, he reminds us, and he says, the importance is not a matter of one's environment or the supposed status that things bring. In other words, it's not found 
in what you have or, or who you know. He says, rather, importance is a function of one's role in God's work. See, Jesus is important, not, not because of the setting of his birth, but because of who he is before God. The dignity of the whole birth, the nativity event, comes from the one who's lying in the food trough. See, God's work often goes on quietly in nondescript places, in people like you and people like me. And so we could say that the circumstances of Jesus' birth and his life, for that matter, are, are a direct challenge to our culture where self-promotion is, is everything. We're taught to compete, to step on, to run over anybody or anything that gets in our way of success. But then we run up against the humility test that Jesus issues with his life and with his birth. And it forces the question in front of us, are we serving others like Jesus would, or are we serving ourselves and serving our own interests? Paul, Paul teaches on this in, in Philippians. If you have your Bibles open, uh, Philippians chapter 2. We know this uh, as the Christ hymn. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, it, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Literally, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself to come and get messy among us. He set aside his kingly rights. He set aside his divine privileges. He had everything. Creator, owner of the universe. He has all of that. But he did not take advantage of that for selfish gain. Though Jesus was very nature God, he didn't grasp at his prerogatives or, or flaunt his rights. Instead, he took on the nature of a servant. He was made in, in human likeness. He took the lowest place possible. He came to preach good news to the poor, and so he was born among the poor. His disciples in his ministry argued about who was number one, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus stopped them short and told them, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the Jesus who it was, not a, it, was, it was not above him that he would stoop down and kneel before his disciples and wash their feet. He came as a servant. In the setting for Jesus' birth, picture the imagery we have in, in the nativity scene in the stable, was the perfect way to launch this message. The infinite God moved to earth and became human in an immense act of humility. It set in motion the path of, 
his mission of forgiveness and mercy and love and, and grace. It was in total con contradiction to what the Jews were expecting in their Messiah. And they were expecting somebody to come in power and riches and honor and glory. And instead, we have this picture of Jesus who arrives in obscurity and poverty and humility. As followers of Jesus, the one who embodies humility himself, we, we need to recognize that we're not here to make our own name great. But we're here as his followers to follow his lead, to live as servants as well, and to lift up his name. It's not about making our name great, it's about making his name great. We look at verse 5 in Philippians 2. It says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. Christian spiritual formation is growing in conformity to Christ. We are formed to his character. We are to be servants. To serve when it's convenient, to serve when it's not convenient. To extend Jesus' love in every place and every opportunity that we are given, even if it'll cost you everything. The second thing that I wanted to point out is that the picture of, the picture of the nativity that we have places the Holy Family in an isolated and lonely place. That's what tradition tells us. Yes, you can have the barn out back removed from everybody else. But I want to tell you, this was a community event. It was private, yes, for purity reasons, but it was not isolated. God is not a God of isolation. He seeks to involve himself. He, he is not some immovable object that, that's out there in some far-off galaxy that whenever we need him, we have to go on this pilgrimage to go find him somewhere. He is a God that moves toward us, gave up those privileges. He's not a God of isolation. He's a God of community. And he moves towards you and towards me. And Jesus, the picture that we have, is it wasn't a barn out back. It was maybe where they kept the animals, but it was in the shelter of a family residence. That Jesus was born into community, that he was born into family. And we get his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, in the nativity story, we get a picture of God's heart and his character. That God chose humility. He identifies with us. He wants to be near us. And, and all of this goes to fulfill the prophecy and promise of long ago, way back in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, God said, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. He is not elite and protected, but he's accessible to everybody. So that was all on the word in, Cataluma. But I said our picture was noted on two words. The other word was manger. And I thought it would be appropriate to make just a couple comments on, on this word, manger. It means food trough. It goes along with the setting. 
And Mary wrapped Jesus in strips of cloth and laid him in the manger. It's not lost on me that the manger was a place of feeding. It held food for animals. And that in Jesus' nativity, we get yet one more glimpse into the I am statements that Jesus made throughout his ministry. A couple weeks ago when we were talking about the staff, the shepherd's staff in the nativity scene, we thought maybe that would point us to the time when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Last week when we talked about the star, we thought, well, perhaps that points us to the I am statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And perhaps the manger, the feed trough, points us to the I am statement where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am what will nourish you. I am what will feed you. I mean, that statement is, re is recorded in uh, John chapter 6. And, the, and what leads up to this statement is uh, the story where the, this huge crowd follows Jesus to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus sees them all gathered there, and, and he wants to feed them. And so in John's telling of the story, he says, Hey, Philip, um, we need to get some food for these people. We need to go buy some food. And Philip, and that's a circuit breaker for him. He just, ah, that's too much money, Jesus. We would have to work for months, and we still wouldn't have enough to feed this entire crowd. And as the story turns out, there's, there's a little boy who, who he had uh, five barley loaves of bread and two fish, and he offered them to Jesus. And so Jesus had the disciples, hey, have everybody sit down. And he, he blessed what he had, the five loaves and two fish. And they start handing out the food. And they feed the entire crowd. And they get to the end, and Jesus said, what a waste it would be if we don't collect what is left. Everybody had all-you-can-eat buffet of, of bread and fish. Now let's get the leftovers and put them to good use. And they collected 12 baskets of leftovers from that particular meal. People were blown away, as you can imagine. And they saw this miracle, and they said, surely he is the prophet that we've been waiting for. So when they find the prophet they've been waiting for, what do you do? We've got to make him king right now. And Jesus says, no. And he slips away. And uh, the people noticed that Jesus was gone the next morning, and there were some boats. This is a peculiar part of the story, if you read it closely. The people that were there stole a bunch of boats to go to the other side of the lake to find Jesus. And... Uh, I want to pick up, I want to read part of the story to you in, in John 6, uh, in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're still hungry and you want some more. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has, he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? So he just fed a huge crowd the, the day before, right? Feeding of the 5,000, that's the story that we call it. And now when Jesus says, hey, you got to do the work of God, all you got to do is believe in the one who he sent. Okay, we can do that, but will you give us a sign so that we know that we should be believing you? They continued on. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're talking about Moses. And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The people wanted more, so they followed Jesus. They wanted him to give them another meal, to fill that physical void that they had in the pit of their stomach. They heard the, the rumblings of their stomach, and they said, we need more of that food. That was pretty good. This guy can do that for us. And Jesus calls them out on it. He says, you only want me because I fed you. Don't spend your energy on searching for that kind of food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. And they said, yes, we'll do that. We can, we can do that. But first, you've got to give us a sign. And Jesus says, believe in the one who God sent. We want more food. Jesus says, I can do better than that. I'm the one who was born in a feeding trough. I, I am the bread of life. I am the one who can fill all of those voids in your life. I can fill the void of loneliness. I can fill the void of sadness. I can fill the void of grief and uncertainty and of fear and anxiety and of no finances and of sickness and all of these other things. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I can, I can satisfy that need. Come to me and you'll never be hungry again. Believe in me and you'll never be thirsty again. Jesus came to serve. He offered up himself. He came to be our nourishment. What's true back here in these words thousands of years ago is still true today. He can do the same thing for you. So we've been talking about a little bit about Advent architecture today. And, and I wonder, my question is, where are you looking for Jesus? We all have an open space of some sort. Don't tell me you don't. Everybody has a place where there's a void in your life. And when humans have a void, we try and fill it with something. 
And Jesus says, I'm enough. But I also know that I don't always first look to him to fill that. I'm human too. And sometimes I look to find nourishment elsewhere. And I just am curious, where are you looking for nourishment these days? If there's a place in your life, are you making it open and available for Jesus to come in? I mean, he's looking for open spaces to come in and fill. He's looking for a place to be born anew. He's looking for a place in common, in ordinary folk like you and me, who open up our hearts and make room for him. And so the question is, will you let him in? Will you let him in?